0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords, up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading will be in Luke. Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. And found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already the way, already on the way down of uh, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drove out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated.
1: Let's pray. Father, we come now to your Word to see Jesus, to see Him that we might see, to see Him that we might be changed, to see Him that we might know how to live in this world, how to react in this world, how to live faithfully in the midst of this world. But we come to this text to see what truly matters, what's at the very center of all of life. So God, I pray that by your Spirit you would bless our examination of your word, we would join with the crowds shouting correctly and faithfully the identity of the name, and the person of Jesus, and we would celebrate his coming, as king. His coming as king to judge, his coming as king as a prophet to declare the words of God, his coming as our lamb to die in our place. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin by reminding you of what we're doing, um, what we really aim to do every week here, but what we're aiming to do these weeks especially. I bring it to your attention, one, because I I, I do think that um, particularly this week, Good Friday and Easter, uh, for whatever reason, um, uh, except by the grace and the mercy of God, it still seems to be a time in our culture when those who have no interest in church, no interest in Christianity... Um, somehow, due to some cultural memory, um, are willing to come. And so, um, as we're going to look later at the the weeping of Jesus, um, I pray that there would be among us um, an attitude and a posture towards our city, not merely uh, of measuring righteousness and unrighteousness, but a weeping. Um, A longing that our neighbors who do not know Christ would know Christ. And at the center of them knowing Christ is not um, your pleading, um, it's not your apologetics, um, it, it's not merely your nice behavior, although all of those things are great. No, at the heart of, of anyone being able to see Jesus and therefore able to see the world as it is, and stick with me for just a second, they must see Jesus. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the next. That there is a kind of seeing uh, a kind of reordering of how we perceive the whole of history, the whole of the world, our, whole, our own understanding of what is righteous and unrighteous, um, unrighteous, what is good, what is evil, what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is true, and what is false, um, that, that, um, that kind of reordering begins with a clear vision of Jesus. In other words, we must see him. Um, that's true for us in this room today. Maybe, maybe you've been a Christian almost the entirety of your life. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home. You were baptized as an infant. You were raised to believe in and trust in Jesus. I um, mean, you find yourself besotted um, by a, a kind of stubborn sin, a stubborn, stubborn proclivity to pride or lust or envy. How might that be rooted out? Well, there's discipline. There's confession, but I believe what the Bible holds out as most important is that this morning you would see Jesus as he actually is, but not a a kind of introspective attention to yourself. But but a pulling up, a, a lifting of your eyes to behold the glorious one, the kingly one, the sacrificial one, to see someone else is the means that God has ordained that you and I would be changed. And just as it is with us, so it is with our unbelieving neighbors. The means that God intends to use to bring them to faith, to bring them from death to life, from rebellion against God to glad submission to all that He is. It is not of a, a, a never-ending introspection on themselves. It's not even a focus um, on their own sins. An awareness of sin is necessary. Um, understand, beginning to understand one's self is necessary. But at the heart, the heart of transformation, the heart of the new birth, the heart of those who are dead in their sins coming alive, it is not anything in them. It is a clear, spirit-empowered vision of the glory, the beauty, the mercy, the severity of Jesus. So this week, we fix our attention again on Jesus. On Friday, we'll gather in this room and we will fix our attention again on Jesus. Sunday morning, we will gather in this room with a lot of loudness. And a couple of you who don't know it yet, singing right here, mostly in tune. But we're gonna gather on Sunday and once again, fix our attention on Jesus. And my prayer is that you would be here and your neighbors would be here, your coworkers would be here, and some random lady that you met at a coffee shop would be here. And that we would hold up to them the picture of who Jesus actually is and what Jesus has actually done. We're going to continue that this week as we examine Palm Sunday. Um, the difficulty in this text is one: its familiarity. If you've grown up in the church, I, I was commenting earlier. Um, I think I've I've heard this text or other versions of this text taught, or I've taught this at least forty-five times here in my forty-fifth year um, of coming back again and again and again to the story of the palm branches and Jesus on a donkey, and he rides in and he cleanses the temple, and and this thing happens again. And again and again, and and there's a difficulty in this text for those of you in this room who've been around Christianity for a long time, that it's grown perhaps too familiar. Um, And and yet, here's the reality, this text is packed with symbolic meaning. In other words, there are things throughout this text that are simply packed with prophetic words spoken to us, spoken in Jerusalem, but spoken to us and spoken to this moment, um, that because of familiarity, we might be blind to them. Symbolic action um, that, that means something about the nature of the world and most of all the identity of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. And so, I don't simply want us to kind of retell this story. I want to take a a, a look at a handful of symbols, symbolic actions that take place um, in, in these verses. And I want to draw your attention to them and help us to consider the meaning. And the meaning in two ways. One, what does this tell us about the nature and the work of Jesus? And then two, what does this tell us about how we're to live as disciples of Jesus in light of these things? But before we get there, um, the familiarity of of what Palm Sunday looks like in our local churches um, can often breed a a complete misunderstanding of what this would have looked like in the first century. So so what we're going to do right now is we're going to talk about the context. What was actually happening? What would have this scene looked like had you been on um, the Mount of Olives, outside of Jerusalem. If you gathered gather in Jerusalem um, in the first century to watch this unfold, what, what would you, your experience have been? The smells, the sounds. Um, why were you there? Um, and because there was a good chance you traveled from a long way to be there. So I want us to talk about the context. What, what's, um, what's happening, kind of set the stage, the scene by which this drama, this symbolic drama plays out. Then next, um, we're gonna draw our attention To five details in this story symbols, artifacts for us to look at, to take note of, and to consider what they tell us about Jesus, consider what they tell us about how we're to live. Are you ready? Okay, Passover. Um, Passover was the biggest feast day in Jerusalem, it wasn't the most popular. Um, by most accounts, um, in those two centuries around the coming of Jesus, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most popular feast day. Um, it was way more fun than Passover because it was like a week of parties and food and dancing and tambourines. I don't know why tambourines feature prominently in, um, in first century Juda- Judaic feast days, um, but it was central to um, the, uh, the, the the celebration of the Passover um, uh, was, a, uh, it was the biggest one. It was the one that most people felt like they had to come back to Jerusalem for. Um, and so large numbers of people would travel from all over the known world at that time. Um, if you were a Jew, if you were interested in Judaism, if you knew a Jew, um, you would come with uh, your Jewish friends, your Jewish neighbors, your Jewish family, and you would all travel to Jerusalem once a year for the Passover feast. Um, some scholars put the numbers around. Um, at, you, you had a population in Jerusalem of roughly 40 to 50,000 people who lived in the city at the time. Um, around the time of the Passover, um, they estimate that an additional 50 to 100,000 people um, would come from all over the world and stay in Jerusalem. As a result, um, not only would you fill up all of the inns and everybody's spare bedroom in Jerusalem. Um, You would have people living in tents spilling out the side of Jerusalem, which was the valley um, that faced Jerusalem leading up to the Mount of Olives. People um, sleeping in tents, sleeping on the ground, um, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, why was this so central? The Passover um, was a feast day that, that remembered four um, the, these first century Jews, it, it did two things. One, it looked back and remembered um, uh, God delivering Israel out of Egypt. Um, when the, the angel of judgment came against Egypt and he passed over Israel um, and killed all of the firstborn in Egypt. And as a result of that, um, Israel was delivered uh, from slavery in Egypt and brought out, um, brought out of the land of Egypt. And then brought into the promised land and the Passover feast commanded by God, um, commanded by God that they would celebrate this feast day every single year, um, was central to not just kind of a a celebration, it was central to their whole narrative, their whole self-understanding in terms of who they were in the world. We are the people that God delivered from Egypt. We are the people that God slaughtered and brought judgment against the nation that oppressed us. And so in the first place, the Passover looked Backwards, But particularly in the first century, in the time of Jesus, the Passover also looked forward. Uh, Most Jews in the first century would have understood themselves, even though they lived in their land, even though they lived in their city, even though they had their own temple, they still understood themselves to be in slavery to the Romans. So the Passover, they would gather year in and year out and recount a story about God coming to deliver them from an oppressive force that had enslaved them um, and bringing judgment and destruction on that nation that they might be released, that they might be set free. And one of the regular occurrences at the Passover feast, as you can imagine, is that someone would arise claiming to be a Messiah. Someone would arise claiming to be a Messiah, get everybody armed, and they would try to start a riot or a revolt against people uh, against the Roman soldiers and the Roman authorities that lived in Jerusalem at the time. In fact, uh, somewhere around three or four years prior to this occurrence that we read about in the Gospel of Luke, um, there had been a large scale massacre um, as uh, some zealots, some Jewish zealots, uh, thinking this was the the time, this was the moment um, when God was going to free Israel from Roman oppression and Roman rule, had gathered in the temple And they gathered in the temple, they got their swords sharp, and they started marching on the praetorium um, there, which sat directly next to the temple. um, And that did not go well. Um, They were immediately massacred and killed, um, as were a whole bunch of people who were just there to watch. Um, And so uh, this is something that happens again and again and again in the first few centuries um, surrounding the coming of Jesus. And so Jesus comes... So the Passover meal in Jerusalem, again, the crowds would have been massive, not um, 30 or 40 kids waving palm branches and hitting you in the face, um, but a crowd of um, likely 100,000. There was a lot of fever pitch, fervor happening in Israel at the time because of Jesus. There were rumors, there were stories, there were songs being sung um, because of the story of this prophet, this one who, could he be the Messiah? who's performing miracles and declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. So we can expect that this Passover gathering was not a small one, but a large one. Um, we often think of Jesus as kind of hidden from view, um, not very popular, not very well known. Um, uh, you should know that he would have, it, it would have been causing a massive stir um, throughout all of Israel and ultimately beyond the bounds of Israel itself. Um, The longer that Jesus ministered, the more that Jesus preached, the more that stories were told of him raising the dead and healing the sick and casting out demons and declaring the arrival of the kingdom of God. This wasn't everyone kind of doing life as normal and oh, there's this weird religious sect starting to form. At the heart of what it meant to be a Jew in the first century is you sang the songs of Zion and you longed for, you prayed for, you hoped that your generation would be the one to see God bring his Messiah, conquer Rome, and establish you among the nations of the earth. Passover, in other words, was a very, very big deal. And to place at the middle of that historic moment the coming of one declaring the kingdom of God, the coming of one who speaks Like no one else speaks. The the coming of one who heals the sick. The coming of one who just a week earlier raised someone from the dead. It it had been verified. I have a friend who saw it. Like those kinds of stories are reverberating throughout every part of society. In a day and age in which there's no social media, there's no nightly news, um, there's no blogs, um, Stories are spreading like wildfire everywhere, about this man named Jesus, who's come to declare the kingdom of God. And so in Jerusalem, we're looking at roughly 150,000 people on the low end, um, And at the heart of Passover was a celebration, a songs. Um, that would reverberate throughout the city and around the city of the coming of God to save his people, Uh, the coming of God's people to worship him and the coming of God in the midst of that worship to redeem them, to reconcile them, Um, and and not primarily in the ways that we think about. We think about salvation primarily in terms of uh, the forgiveness of our sins and going to heaven someday when we die. When they sang of the salvation of God, what they meant was God's going to come and kill the Romans. God's going to see to it that they're no longer oppressed. So there were the songs and there were the crowds. There was the feasting. And there was at the heart of everything that's happening in Israel and particularly in Jerusalem and particularly in the temple courts themselves, which functioned as the center point, kind of the um, the place that everybody rallied to um, during this feast, during this festival. An expectation and hope, and now, given that context, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry takes on a whole new framework. You see, Jesus comes riding on a donkey. He comes, and the crowds, which begins with the disciples and then it spills over into the crowds, begin singing the song of the coming of the king, the coming of the one who bears the name of God. And this song begins to reverberate. This song begins to resound. This song spills over into a roar as people are laying down palm branches and taking off their clothes and laying them on the road as Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. And if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you can imagine in this moment, this is it. And we know from other gospel accounts, um, the disciples were particularly dense at this moment. Um, As Jesus has been telling them, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they're saying back to him, "Uh, do I get to sit next to you? Do I get to like have the next throne over? Um, Can I make sure that I'm seen? I have a good place on stage so that people see you. They see me right next to you that's the best place to be. Um, they're, they're clueless, See, even though Jesus, um, as Luke tells us, again and again and again, says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Um, they think Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do exactly what everybody expects that the Messiah will do when he comes to Jerusalem. Bring the kingdom of God, which what does that mean? Conquer the Romans and establish Jerusalem and the temple um, as rulers over all of the nations of the earth. So you can imagine as they're walking along, the disciples begin to sing the psalm, Psalm 118. And the crowd along the side of the road sees Jesus on a donkey and begins to join with the disciples, perhaps whispering to one another, is that the Jesus? Is that Jesus we've heard stories about? Is that the one I already raised his friend from the dead. I heard he, I knew a guy who was, um, who was crazy. He was possessed by a demon and they, he, he healed him. I've I, I heard stories about him preaching to massive crowds and they were hungry and he fed them with, with, out of nothing, like 12 loaves and, and, and a few fishes. Like he, he fed them. I, I've heard stories about this and they begin to join in the singing of the song. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes bearing the name of God himself. If you're Peter and I know most of you think you're smarter than Peter but let's be honest, you're not. C- can you imagine in that moment the excitement? Can you imagine in that moment it's, it's happening? After three years of lots and lots of walking. <laughs> three years Jesus saying being right on and you know love what he's saying and all of a sudden he'll say crazy stuff about dying but uh, you know, whatever, that's over. Now we're here. The crowds are forming along the side of the road. They're marching in behind us, declaring that this is the one who bears the name of God himself. And Jesus is riding on a donkey and everybody knows what that means. Here comes the king. I, I like to imagine where the disciples were after verse 48. Jesus is marching into the temple. He's got a massive crowd, everybody is shouting, this is the moment. Um, and, and literally, as he walks into the temple courts, you can imagine with me for a moment, Jesus just saying, it's time. Pointing to the praetorium and then this massive crowd um, that there would not have been enough soldiers to deal with um, would have just stormed the, 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 would have stormed the Roman garrison, killed the soldiers, killed Pilate, killed everybody and, and established Jesus as king in Jerusalem. Like, that's all it would have taken. Like, we're at that moment. We're on the cusp of that. He's in the temple courts. Massive crowd, all ready to bleed and die. I mean, if Jesus just gets like an itch in his wrist and does that, like, the story goes way different. But instead, Jesus does this. He condemns the temple. He condemns temple authorities. Flips over tables. And they leave. We don't have to imagine what their reaction is. We we know what it is from the other gospel accounts. They walk out and they immediately start saying to Jesus, like, but Jesus, look at this city. It's great, right? Like the buildings and the stones. It's beautiful. Don't you want it? It's like when Jenny and I were visiting houses a few weeks ago, and um, I tend to be a very quick judge of a house. And then three seconds of walking in, I would say, no, this is terrible. Jenny, we'd walk out, it's like this is great, like can't you imagine? Like this and this and this. I'm like, no, we can't. We're done. And Jesus walks out, the disciples are pointing back to the house. Say, look at this place. In other words, they're shell-shocked. Jesus has just done something from which there is no return. So there's the context. A bit of the story, I want to ask you now to pay attention to five things. Uh, much has been made uh, from preachers preaching on the fact that Jesus rides a donkey or a colt. Um, usually the point made is that this is an act of humility. It's an act of um, Jesus, he could have ridden this like, glorious steed into Jerusalem, Um, By riding a donkey, he's basically showing like I'm nobody. Don't make I'm not a big deal. I'm just riding on the um, riding on my little little donkey here into Jerusalem. Uh, The meaning of the of him riding a donkey uh, is actually quite the opposite. Um, He rides a donkey because in Zechariah nine we know that the king who comes to rule um, the king who comes bearing all authority over all the nations of the earth comes to Jerusalem riding a donkey. Um, Second, within uh, the culture of the first century, um, a a conquering general, um, kind of a sign of his absolute dominance, that that there was no one who could resist him, is he would ride into cities, um, not in his chariot, not in a big war horse. Um, He would ride on a donkey. Why? Because he's basically announcing the war's over. Like, there's no more opposition to my authority. So Jesus rides a donkey, um, and the language there of humility is not humility like a kind of feigned humility, where Jesus is saying, um, "I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big deal. Don't, don't don't pay attention to me." Um, It's humility in the sense that he's not coming. um, He's not coming as one who needs to conquer. He's coming as one who has already conquered. He's not coming as one who needs to kind of defeat a bunch of enemies in order to claim authority for himself. He comes into Jerusalem as one who has authority in and of himself. You even see this in, I want you to pay attention to this, um, which Almost no one has. It's an odd story. It's an odd moment. Um, Verse 30, he says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? you shall say this The Lord has need of it. Isn't that a funny story? Like, Hayes, Molly, I want a new truck. So I want you to go to the Ford dealership. Omira, maybe. Kind of like an Irish theme going on their website. Um, So I want you to go to the dealership, walk in, there'll be a cabinet, grab some keys. Don't sneak in, just walk in, take the keys, go out to the truck, get into the truck, and drive it here. And then we're going to go to Presbytery in a new truck. And... If anyone stops you, happens to you walk in, grab the keys, and they happen to stop you, maybe it strikes them as strange, just tell them your dad has need of it. And keep walking. Like, they're not going to get very far, right? Why? Because dad doesn't carry much authority at Omira. I don't know if they know who I am. should know that I'm dad. Um, Like, there's not much authority in that story. um, And it's it's awkward, weird, like, who? But, but Jesus tells them, "Tell them the Lord has need of it." So we have two things to observe here. You have the kind of authority that can claim what belongs to someone else as His own. None of you have that kind of authority. It this may seem like a small thing. it's a donkey. Uh, but his ability to lay claim on someone else 's donkey as belonging to him because he has need of it in that moment is a unique kind of authority. Well scholars believe, um, given jesus 's activity in Bethany, um, you probably knew this person before, it wasn't just a "Oh the Lord, whoever that is uh, can have my donkey. Um, he knew Jesus and he knew Jesus as specifically. Lord, the King, the one who reigns. So imagine that kind of authority combined with the image of Jesus, the King who has already who already possesses all authority in heaven and on earth riding on a donkey from Zechariah 9 and the image in Zechariah 9 is this one who rides to Jerusalem on a donkey is king. And not of your hearts and my hearts merely um, not merely of uh, this small city, a um, relatively small city off the coast of the Mediterranean um, and not merely of this small um, relatively seemingly in the in the vast history of things seemingly insignificant nation off the coast of the Mediterranean. He is in fact king and Lord of all the nations of the earth everywhere and that he is due the bending of the knee of every man woman and child from all of history from every nation forever that's the claim being made in this text we've we've grown far too accustomed to a kind of awe-shucks Jesus, who just walks around everywhere being sweet, occasionally doing a nice miracle for somebody who needs one. The most climactic moment in the story of Jesus, he enacts a set um, he he proceeds with a set of actions that declare throughout all of history he is king. He possesses all authority everywhere and over everyone. And in the face of this kind of confession, um, uh, the the protest in our culture and among our neighbors of I don't I I don't believe in Jesus um, is absolutely tepid and weak. Here's the thing, if you're in this room, saying, like, that's, that's, that seems like a fairly radical claim, to say that he's Lord, that he's King, that he possesses a kind of royal, divine authority over all of the earth. Um, I, I don't even believe in Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus' authority does not rest on your belief in it. It's simply and absolutely True. Living in a culture that despises authority. That longs to be ruled by our own emotions or other people's emotions. Um, We long to be free. And by free, we don't mean what every other age has ever meant by free. We mean free to do whatever I want, to be whatever I want, to feel whatever I want. In the face of a culture that has run headlong into that abyss, if you're here today and you've bought into that, you were never meant to bear that burden. It's a terrible, bone-crushing burden. But in the face of that, the claims of Jesus are as radical and offensive as anything imaginable. He is the one who comes bearing the name of God. He is the one who comes and speaks with absolute authority. The nations are his. Your life is his. Your body is his. Your sexuality is his. Your money is his. Your righteousness is his. So we have the donkey. What are the palms? You have this symbol of honor. Here is a king who comes. And it's so important to see this. Who comes not facing resistance. His coming is not perceived and seen as bad news. It's seen and perceived as good news. And this is what some of us, if I'm honest, in this room do not understand. The coming of Jesus to reign in Denver, Colorado is the most glorious and beautiful and good thing imaginable. And people may not see it, they may hate it, they may resist it, but it is objectively and fundamentally good and the only grounds of joy that any of humanity can have. They lay down their robes. They lay down these palms. What are these palms and these robes? They are a sign of royalty and honor and welcome. You have a crowd who's not like bummed out that Jesus is there. Um, uh, Much, again, more, a lot of preaching, hey, has been made um, from uh, observing the fickleness of the crowd. I don't think the crowd is fickle. Actually, what you're going to see is, um, we know that in Jerusalem, at this point, in this moment, during this festival, there are two groups of people. Um, there is kind of one group that we're going to pull all together. There are true disciples of Jesus who've come to love him and listen to him and follow him and obey Him, and then there is this enthusiastic mob, we'll call them. <laughs> they think he's a blast. Um, I think it's in Mark's gospel uh, as he's kind of doing this back and forth banter with the um, temple authorities and he's just kind of um, destroying them back and forth in these debates. Uh, And there's this one wonderful line in Mark's gospel where he says, and the crowd rejoiced. It's a little like the mob rejoiced to hear him. (laughs) Like they're watching all of this unfold and they love it. They think this is a blast. Like these kind of hoity-toity, neat-nick temple authorities, and Jesus is just taking them them to the back of the woodshed. Um, And they think it's great. So you've got two groups of people. You have the real disciples of Jesus at this point, and you have the mob. I think that's who's singing right now. And whatever that number is, it's significant enough that they have to sneak him away at night to kill him. In fact, most of the conspiracy against Jesus um, that we'll look at, particularly on on Good Friday evening, um, happens when most of these people are asleep. There's a reason why they do it when most of those people are asleep. Because they're afraid of the crowd. Um, so, So you've got that group, but you also have a second group, and it's represented by the temple authorities, the political authorities, the religious authorities of the day who represented kind of the seat of power in Jerusalem and those who were attached to them. They're looking at Jesus with deep concern. First as a threat to their own authority, their own power, um, and second as, as one who's going to kind of um, unseat uh, their way of making lots and lots of money. So you don't have a fickle crowd. What you see outside of Jerusalem is a mob of people who see the coming of Jesus as glorious, good, wonderful things. See, Jesus is the celebrated one. He's the one who is honored and brings joy. So I ask you, hardened culture warrior reformed Christian talking to you and you know exactly who you are is your life marked by joy Are you so driven and concerned by what you see on the news or that weird guy on social media keeps posting that conspiracy video that you're starting to believe now? He was crazy, but maybe it's true. And, and are you so consumed with, with anger and rage and outrage that you've forgotten to rejoice? Like people around you who don't know Jesus don't know that the coming of Jesus as king is, is something to be celebrated. Something glorious and good because you're so angry all the time. Oh, that we would be at least like the mob. <laughs> Not like the Twitter mob or whatever, the, whatever the connotations that would have. But may we as a people be marked but joy. We would break out in song in the face of wickedness, in the face of evil, in the face of what oftentimes feels at least like a culture that's in absolute ruin and collapse. May we be the people who sing. Because our king has come and he has promised to come again. Third, third, singing it's important to note exactly what they sing we we actually read it before Psalm 118, they declare blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this was a common psalm sung as people would journey to Jerusalem but it takes on special meaning as this one riding on a donkey comes and in Zechariah, um, there's this beautiful kind of blending or bleeding together that so it gets a little bit confusing like is this kind of a human king that's coming to reign in Jerusalem or is this Yahweh himself coming to reign in Jerusalem and then you add to it this song being sung, Hosanna, Hosanna Hosanna, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does it mean to come in the name of the Lord? It means you come bearing the name of God. In other words, as Jesus rides in Jerusalem, not only does he have authority over all the nations of the earth, it is God himself coming to rule and coming to rescue. May we be a people who see and hold fast to and repeat, even when it's offensive, the absolute and unique claims of Jesus in our time and in our day. Jesus has been relegated to, and Christianity has been relegated to, well, if that works for you, a kind of um, post-modern millennial accessory. Some of you wear jean jackets, some of you wear earrings, some of you get tattoos. Um, Some of us believe in Jesus, and it's all the same. There's a kind of claim at the heart of Christianity that says, no, Jesus is God. And everyone has to deal with him. Everyone has to deal with him. Even if you pick tattoos over kind of religion, you still have to deal with him. Oh, that we'd be a people who believe that in our own lives, who believe that for our children and for our marriages and for our friendships, and believe that for people, for everyone, for our nation. Jesus is the one who comes bearing the very name of God. Jesus goes into the temple flipping the tables and condemning it. Um. There's one of the difficulties in the Gospels. I, I was telling a couple of people this morning, um, I was so excited. I've never seen this before. And uh, a couple of scholars helped me see it. Peter Lighthart, one of them. Uh, I've never seen this before. Um, John's Gospel places Jesus going to the temple and cleansing it at the very, very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's actually the first thing he does. The Synoptic Gospels... Place Jesus going to the temple and cleansing the temple at the very end of Jesus' ministry. And most scholars um, have tried to reconcile those. Most people have said there's no way he could have pulled this off twice. Um, he just did it once. The synoptics got it right. He did it at the end of his ministry. And John, just to kind of be convenient, takes that same story and plugs it in at the front end of Jesus' ministry. Because he's trying to tell one cohesive narrative. There are actually reasons to believe that Jesus did do it twice. At the beginning, once at the beginning of his ministry, at the very beginning of his ministry, is kind of a declaration of this is who I am and what I've come to do, which is why in John's gospel, you see open hostility against Jesus from the very, very beginning. Um, and then again, doing it again at the very end of his public ministry, coming once again and, and pronouncing or proclaiming judgment on the temple. Why? Um. It's interesting, there is some loose allusions to Leviticus 14, particularly as Jesus begins to explain what he's just done to his disciples, as he begins to explain after this text that we look at today, uh, uh, as he begins to explain this action that he just did in the temple, he tells them that essentially God is going to come and destroy this place, and he uses a phrase, a very interesting phrase. He says, not one stone will be left upon another, Leviticus 14, if you had a house, and in that house, some sort of mold or disease-causing something begins to grow on the wall, your job was to call the priest. Please do not call me. Um, call the priest. The priest would come out, do some tests on the, the mold, give you some instructions on how to clean it, usually involve tearing down that wall and kind of rebuilding another wall, Um, various things that could be done there, um, and then he would leave. Um, If, in a week's time, um, that mold began to grow elsewhere in the house, or it continued, just showed back up again, um, you would go back and get the priest, the priest would come and declare the house to be unclean, that everything should be torn down such that not one stone would be left upon another. Jesus has come to the house twice as a priest. He comes now and declares this place is unclean. It has become a source of death rather than life. He tells his disciples in describing why he pronounces and enacts judgment on the temple, not one stone will be left upon another. The coming of Jesus is glorious and good. The coming of Jesus is the one who comes bearing all authority. But please do not be deceived or do not misunderstand. Jesus comes to destroy death and all sources of it. He comes to destroy sin and all who will not let go of it. What Jesus does, what Jesus pronounces in Jerusalem, what is ultimately fulfilled in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, it's interesting to note that that's one of the earliest proofs, by the way, um, in the early church following 70 AD, um, that Jesus is exactly who he said he was because he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, and 70 years later, it was destroyed. What Jesus has proclaimed over Jerusalem and has done to Jerusalem, he has promised to do to all of the earth and to everyone who will not bow before him. Not one stone. So Jesus is our king. Jesus is the root of all real Joy, Jesus is absolute and unique. And last, Jesus is filled with mercy. was convicted even this morning as I read verse 41. And when he drew near, he's about to go and enact a judgment that will be one of the most horrific things that ever unfolds in all of history. If you want to read about it, read Josephus. I remember getting sick in grad school when we had to read Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem. It said, blood ran to the bridles of the horses. He draws near. He's about to proclaim that. And, and in that moment, what do you think Jesus' posture is? His emotional state. There's going to be anger later. We'll see that. Is it Glee? Yeah, we're going to get them. No. He weeps. We have a terrible misunderstanding of the nature of mercy in our day. We think mercy is a kind of passivity. And some of us embracing that form of mercy say, hey, let's, everybody's fine, everything's good, just, we just love you and everything's great. And in doing so, you miss the fact that God's mercy and his judgments run side by side. Others of you have forgotten mercy altogether and it's just, let's just go get them. Yeah, God. And I'm afraid that a lot of us have forgotten to weep. Jesus comes and is about to announce a terrible, devastating judgment in which many of the people he is speaking to, including many of the children he is speaking to, will be slaughtered in the worst way imaginable. Because, absolutely because, not, of, not, not because of Rome's evil, but because of their failure. In fact, their utter rejection of Jesus as King and Lord and Messiah. A kind of judgment that, and, and please hear me, according to the scriptures, all of us deserve, including them. And you don't see here a kind of stoic cold-hearted Jesus. You don't see him merely kind of executing a kind of justice or announcing the coming of a kind of justice. You see him weep. Behold in his tears an indictment of our own lack of tears and the beauty and the glory and the kindness of the mercy of God. closing I just want to point this out the prophetic cycle in all of scripture kind of follows a set pattern the people of God rebel against God they forget God, they neglect God's laws Um, um, people just begin to live however they want, God then gets angry he sends a prophet to speak and declare to them the coming judgment of God, but that's not where prophetic enunciation uh, ends oftentimes where we think it ends, but it's not where it ends anywhere in Scripture. What you see actually repeated again and again and again in the Old Testament is the prophet comes and speaks and declares the coming of judgment, warns of the judgment of God against the people who are in rebellion against God, and then they turn, representing those people to God and begin to plead with God and argue with God and weep before God on behalf of those people. Jesus comes and, and we see here plainly the first phase of kind of that prophetic cycle. Jesus comes and declares the judgment of God, the severe and devastating judgment of God against the people in rebellion, against him, against his law, against his authority, and against his mercy. And then what we see unfold the rest of this week, particularly on Friday, As this prophet turns and begins to plead with the Father, to argue with the Father with his own body and blood on behalf of his people. Let's pray and prepare for communion.